Okay, this is another one in the series of Strengthening Your Serve. This is similar to the one that Pastor Matt did last week on, I believe, the life of William Cooper, which really wasn't a Bible character, but it was someone who lived a life for the glory of God and uh, someone that we could learn from, uh, from his example. So tonight, uh, my discussion with you is on the life of Dr. John C. Whitcomb. And most people who have heard of Dr. Whitcomb primarily associate him with Dr. Henry Morris as co-authors of the Genesis Flood and founders of the modern creation movement. However, this is not how he thought of himself, nor how those who knew him well viewed him. Instead, they knew him as a devoted teacher of God's word a theology teacher, and a servant of the Lord. Now, one interesting fact about Dr. Whitcomb is he's the only one in our whole series who has the honor of having spoken here in our church. So back in the early 90s, Dr. Whitcomb came here for a spring Bible conference and uh, spoke. And he also, I remember... Specifically, that he spoke at Emmaus at an Emmaus Bible conference in the mid '80s or late '80s. Were any of you at either of those conferences? Okay, we have a few that remember Dr. Whitcomb. I know Paula was. You better raise your hand. Okay. <laughs> All right. So it was at the one at Emmaus at the Emmaus Bible conference where Dr. Whitcomb strengthened my serve. So this is, in essence, kind of a, a testimony type thing as well. You see, Dr. Whitcomb, uh, at, at most Emmaus Bible conferences, they have some morning sessions. And my superintendent at the time, Mr. Thiessen, allowed Mr. Busnitz and myself to get out of our classes that morning and go hear Dr. Whitcomb because he was speaking on the laws of thermodynamics, which may be above your head. That is fine, but what Dr. Whitcomb shared that morning about uh, how the Bible teaches that energy can't be created or destroyed, it just changes form, and that everything moves towards a state of entropy if given enough time, or disorder, if you want to call it that. So what he was really speaking about was how God preserves things, and how the curse caused things to move towards disorder. And for me, I, I obviously believed in the six-day literal creation and all of that. I believed in the flood, but I was teaching physical science to freshmen. And sorry for those of you in this room who I taught before, like 1986. I may not have been as adamant as I should have been. But anyway... Um, this really helped focus my view on uh, the physical sciences and how God was even a God of the physical sciences. The, law, the laws of science were actually found in God's Word. And that uh, was instrumental in my life. Well, Dr. Whitcomb, if I can get him up here, I hope you can see that a little bit. 
Um, Dr. Whitcomb loved people. He was a man of deep conviction. He was disciplined. Uh, he never aspired to leadership. In fact, he didn't want to be a pastor. He only pastored for a short time, and that was an interim pastor because his church that he was attending uh, needed it uh, between, you know, that time period between pastors. Um, he had an interesting fact about his life that he kept a diary which he started at age 11 and when he died two years ago the diary is over 30,000 pages and most entries were very short so don't think that uh, they were extensive but he did keep a diary and that helped in the writing of his biography obviously um, I don't know much about his family. I do know that he got married um, after he was a theology professor and he married a lady named Edicine. And um, together they had four children and she was very supportive of him and uh, did ministry with him. Um, one interesting thing or one kind of tragic thing about that is Edicine in her first pregnancy uh, miscarried twin girls and ended up with had she had toxemia through that process. Edicine herself almost passed away and then uh, died about 15 later, years later from an autoimmune disease. Then uh, later in life uh, later after that uh, John married Norma, and Norma would have been with him. I remember for sure that she was along when he came to Newton Bible. So tonight we're going to take a glimpse into the life of Dr. Whitcomb, and we're going to look at six ways that we can strengthen our serve. And as we look at his life, we will do so by examining, examining some episodes that occurred in relationship to each of his four what he calls earthly fathers. Uh, of course, he had a heavenly father, but his earthly fathers that he had were his biological father, his spiritual father, his theological father, and his scientific father. Uh, much of the info that I have for tonight that I'm going to talk about is gleaned from this book, A Good and Faithful Servant, The Life and Times of Professor Whitcomb. It's written by his son, David. It's his oldest son, and uh, it's over 500 pages, a lot longer than John's diary. Um, but every chapter was checked and added to by John himself, and it actually took 10 years to compile, and a copy was given to John in January of 2020, and this wasn't a final published copy, just the uh, final draft, so forth. And John took it and edited the wife on his first wife, Edicine. And uh, then he handed it to David on fe the night of February 4th. And he told David that I am now finished. And he passed away that night. Well, John was born in 1924 in a godless home. It's amazing what God can do taking a young man 
born in the situation that he was and using him the way God did. His dad was also named John, but when I refer to John for the rest of the time, it'll be Dr. John Whitcomb himself. And John's dad was very successful in serving in the army. He moved all the way up to the rank of colonel, served under George Patton in World War II, and received many medals of honor uh, as a result of his work and his service. John respected his parents highly, and he wrote numerous letters to them uh, until the time that they both passed. During John's childhood, uh, his nickname was Buster. What does that sound like? Uh, If you nickname your kid Buster, are any of you nicknamed Buster? (laughs) Well, the people that knew him and kind of agreed with what that meant said that he was a rascal a teaser, a prankster. He had a twinkle in his eye, which I would agree with. He was very inquisitive. Um, Just a very active young boy. He lived in an army family, so they moved many, many times. One, One stint was even in Leavenworth, Kansas, although that was not high on John's priority of places that he liked to live. Um, His favorite was actually in China, and he fell in love with the Chinese people, and even though John wasn't saved at the time, it caught John's attention of how uh, a number of mission agencies were there helping the Chinese people, and that had an effect on John uh, throughout his years of ministry. Well, John finally ended up with his family in Georgia uh, for the beginning of his high school years. And I guess if you know much about Georgia public education, it's not very strong, and his dad did not think it would prepare him for the military, which John's dad basically demanded that um, John go to West Point. So... After his sophomore year in Georgia Georgia public schools, dad sent him off to McCallie Military Academy in Tennessee uh, for his last two years. And that taught John rigorous study. It taught him discipline. It was actually a, quote, Bible school. So they had some good teaching there and he got a lot of Bible teaching, particularly in the Old Testament. Um, John went to the Bible classes. He went to chapel out of duty. It was not personal at all. But he did his studies. He did learn the essence of God's Word. I'm sure he didn't understand it because we can't until we have the Holy Spirit. But God still was at work in John. Then he graduated from there, and actually poor eyesight kept him out of West Point. So he wanted to go to Georgetown. This is John. Wanted to go to Georgetown and become a lawyer. Dad wanted him to go to Princeton. And so he ended up at Princeton in 1942. You can imagine the world situation at that time. We're about in World War II. A lot of things going on. 
Well, um, you probably know some things about Princeton. It's founded in 1746 by the Presbyterians during the Great Awakening, and it flourished in the late 1700s under Reverend John Witherspoon. And it continued to support a strong conservative biblical view uh, and held the supremacy, some, some, excuse me, supremacy of God's word and evangelism kind of marked it for its first 150 years. And uh, as I was looking through the list of influential graduates, I thought that maybe Charles Hodge might have been the most influential who wrote systematic theology. Anyway, before John got there in 1942, it obviously Princeton started to fall apart. The board of directors was no longer made up of ministers, and the school looked to natural revelation than the authority of scriptures. They began to uh, view money more important than truth as well. So the effects of liberal theology had destroyed Princeton as a defender of the faith. And here comes John Whitcomb into the scene. And so the first thing that we're going to look at as we look at John's life is that we can strengthen our serve or you should strengthen your serve by mentoring and being mentored. And here uh, we meet John's spiritual father at actually at Princeton, doc, Dr. Donald Fullerton. Now, Dr. Ful Fullerton uh, didn't teach at the time, as I know of, at the school, but he taught a Bible study at the dorm beginning John's freshman year. And so God was still at work at Princeton, mainly through alumni and students, but as far as I know, none of the faculty... Uh, would have taught the truth. Fullerton was a graduate of Princeton. He was a former missionary. And uh, he started that Bible study. And John was very faithful in attendance and faithful in reading his Bible. And on February 13, 1943, John was saved. So that winter of his first year, uh, he came to trust in God. So, John looks back to Donald Fullerton as his spiritual father and mentor. And they continued to be in touch for years and years. And Donald uh, really had, gave gave a lot of advice and direction to John. Well, in March 20, on March 20 of that same year, only six weeks after John was saved, John was on his way to Fort Bragg because he had uh, obviously uh, signed up for ar the army and uh, now he was being called. So he went to army training and along with him, he took his Schofield Reference Bible. Please remember that as we go through this evening, his Schofield Reference Bible. 
He ended up fighting in World War II at the Battle of the Bulge. He helped get Americans out of prisoner camps as the European conflict ended. Actually, he got to spend some time in Belgium with his father during the war uh, between battles or conflicts that they each had to go to. They didn't fight together, but they were able to see each other during some of those breaks. After the war, John ended up back at Princeton to continue his study, mostly because of the encouragement of Donald Fullerton. And I think Donald wanted John to be in his Bible study and have more time to mentor him and guide him. John had met other Christian guys at Fort Bragg and in his army division in World War II, and he was able to have fellowship and some Bible studies with them whenever possible. So John valued uh, time with other believers. Now he is back, to, back at Princeton, and his focus had changed. He was a believer, and so now instead of just majoring in history, he was preparing to eventually be a missionary to China or a Bible teacher. And after graduating from uh, Princeton, his first goal was to become a missionary in China. But if you remember the post-war climate in China with Mao, Mao Tse-sung, um, they made laws that did not even allow new missionaries to come in. So that door was closed for the time being. So Dr. Fullerton and others encouraged John to get more Bible training. And uh, even if he would eventually go to China, that would help. Or if he was going to be a Bible teacher, he needed that. So John then enrolled at Grace Theological Seminary in, in Winona Lake. Here he was mentored by his theological father. So we've, sat, we've talked about his biological father, his spiritual father. Now his theological father, President Dr. Alva McLean, who was the president of Grace. Um, John went through those years at Grace. And then uh, at the end of that, when he graduated, China was still closed, so Dr. McLean offered John a teaching position at Grace uh, while he was working on his doctorate. So John got a master's in Bible and uh, then decided to go on uh, and get his doctorate. Upon McLean's prodding, John accepted. John was a gifted teacher. And he had the gift, and I would agree with this, and if you heard him, you probably would too. He had the gift of targeting the, te the teaching to the level of the audience. And he would point his finger whenever he was ready to make a very important point. And it always seemed like it was pointing at you. He strongly believed that every believer could learn and benefit from the teaching of God's word. And he often accused, was accused of too hard of assignments, even brought before the board at, at Grace a number of times on that count. He was able to keep listeners engaged through his dry humor, which actually had an ultimate purpose, according to him. His signature joke, which you've probably heard me use or some creationist use, was that 
when John hypothesized that the animals may have hibernated on the ark, he would emphatically say that we know this because the rabbits came out two by two. So, and then he would often remind his students that the Bible is the only book that God ever wrote. And I think we need to hear that as well. John went on to teach many courses at the school, including Christian Evidences and Apologetics. He developed this course as a result of the influence of another spiritual father, but he doesn't, doesn't uh, count this guy, this man, as the, his main spiritual father. But this guy's name was Cornelius Van Til, and he had written a book on the defense of the faith, which promoted presuppositional apologetics. And in this class, uh, Dr. Van Til uh, clearly taught the literal, historical, grammatical method of Bible interpretation. And that was instrumental in John's life, and he became a champion uh, for that approach to Bible interpretation. And uh, John's study of history, you know, you think of God's providence, God's sovereignty, God's, God had him in history at Princeton, his love for prophecy, in the Bible, all of those resulted in his teaching of Old Testament history classes, prophecy classes, and then he also had a love for uh, the grammar of the Bible, so he would teach Hebrew exegesis. He was a bright man. During his teaching career, Dr. Whitcomb taught over 1,000 men directly in his classes. That included classes at Grace Theological, at Word of Life Bible Institute, which some of you have attended or are familiar with, and another school called Christian Workmen's School of Theology, which John loved the approach to. And Calvin, it's much like what you're going through where men would sit under the theological teaching, but also be involved in a church setting for service. And so that, was, that type of thing was going on uh, way back then. John kept in close contact with Dr. Fullerton and visited Princeton many times to help keep the, now, now it was called the Princeton Evangelical Fellowship going in the right direction. Um, 2 Timothy 2.2 was one of John's life verses that goes along with the first point of strengthening our serve if I can turn to it here and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also and we can see that that was a heartbeat of John in his life. So then, uh, besides teaching and writing already, while he was in working on his doctorate, his doctorate thesis dealt with evidences for Noah's flood. And what you might think, well, that's kind of a jump from his history background and his love for prophecy 
and uh, his love for the uh, Bible, like like Hebrew, his love for Hebrew. But um, he was in a environment like many of you in the 50s, or some of you in the 50s, 60s, um, where there was some teaching out there related to the gap theory. And that was held by Dr. Schofield in the Schofield Reference Bible. Now I know, I was, I was just a boy at that time, but I know in our church here at Newton Bible, there were many who had a Schofield Reference Bible. And some of you maybe still have it, have one. And that, it's a great uh, reference Bible. But it had footnotes on it. And some of them, by Dr. Schofield, specifically related to the flood and the dinosaurs in Job. Some of those footnotes were not accurate. And John believed in this, believed very strongly in six literal days and the destruction of the global flood. You see, in the gap theory, it was believed between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 that there was this gap gap of time when Satan fell and that there was a previous creation. There's various gap theories, but there was a previous creation that was ruined and maybe even by a flood and that's what caused most of the fossils. And then God, in essence, recreated uh, of what we, have, what we find in the account of Genesis. Well, this teaching caused some friction between John and the other professors at Grace, including Dr. McLean, because John didn't agree with it, the gap theory and what Schofield was proposing, but um, Dr. McLean, actually the president, and every one of the other professors held to the gap theory uh, in some way. Okay, then... In 1953, we come across John's scientific father, and his name was Dr. Henry Morris. At that time, Henry Morris was not a doctor, but in 1953, he was a guest lecturer at Grace, and he argued that the geological landscape reflected a universal flood, the event that that was clearly described in Genesis. And this lecture emboldened John and eventually led to his doctorate paper. Now, you ready for the, this, the name of this paper? This is a mouthful. The Genesis Flood, an investigation of its geographical extent, geological effects, and chronological setting. <clears throat> well, Henry Morris worked for the Texas Highway Department of Bridges and Dams Division. And he mainly worked along the Rio Grande River and the tributaries into the Rio Grande. And through his work, he developed a keen interest in flooding. Uh, 
and what flooding causes, what geological formations it causes. This led him to write a book called That You Might Believe. But it was not accepted from either biblical scholars or scientific scholars. Henry Morse at that time did not have much training in geology or in the Bible. But Henry Morris did have some good ideas in that book. Uh, some of them were uh, off track. But anyway, it wasn't accepted. And that happened, Henry wrote that book right before World War II. So right when John was going into World War II, then Henry was writing that book. Then World War II started, and Henry served in World War II. And upon completion of the war, went on to get his doctorate in hydraulics with a minor in geology. Now, hydraulics would not be hydraulic uh, cylinders like we have on our implements or whatever. It would deal with water and the effect of flooding and that type of thing. He got that from the University of Minnesota, which was highly regarded at the time. So just as Whitcomb held Morris in high respect, the same was true of Morris towards Whitcomb. Morris once wrote uh, about Whitcomb, he is not only an outstanding scholar, but a gracious gentleman, and in my judgment, just about the finest Bible teacher one could ever hear. They only actually met two times personally before the publishing phase of their book. That's an amazing fact for guys to collaborate in a book and only have met face-to-face -face two times. Those two meetings were the time that, Doc, that Henry Morris spoke at Grace in 1953 and another meeting in 1959. Their book was published in 1961. Their goal was to serve the Most High God and to evangelize the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They recognized the stumbling blocks to faith that were generated by the theory of natural evolution and the resulting uh, geological timeline. They felt that these godless philosophies and theories could be overcome through the clear presentation of biblical and scientific evidences. Now, I have to say that even though they only met in person two times, they wrote gobs of letters to each other. They evaluated each other's writing. They gave suggestions. Um, they talked about other people's views. Um, the main thing during those days is that they were working, uh, that Henry was evaluating John's dissertation, and John was evaluating Henry's work on improving the book that you may, might believe. John finally turned in his dissertation or his doctorate thesis deal in May of 1957. It was 452 pages long. Dr. McLean got involved with helping to determine if Whitcomb's views were correct. So there would have been other teachers there at Grace and along with Dr. McLean. Dr. McLean, after a long time, eventually responded, you know, 
I think this young whippersnapper Whitcomb is probably right. This led, this dissertation led to Grace abandoning the teaching of the gap theory and, to, and they began across the board teaching of the literal and historical accurate text found in Genesis. The doctorate, which uh, was finally accepted by Grace Theological, John then sent that 400-some page uh, document to Moody Press to have it published. But they, Moody Press refused. They were adamant that they would only publish it if he could shorten it to 300 pages. So he talked to Dr. Morris about that. <clears throat> and Henry Morris wrote him back and all he said, maybe we can collaborate and write a book together. Dr. Morris did not recommend that he try to shorten it. That collaboration resulted in the Genesis flood with Dr. Whitcomb writing most of the theological content and Dr. Morris the scientific content. It was finally published in 1961 after many publishing companies rejected it, saying it was too long, too technical, and too controversial. Finally, the only one that would publish it was a small company called the Presbyterian and Reformed Publishing Company. It was 489 pages long, published in 1961. So this is what it looked like. I, I've had a copy since my days of teaching at Brian, and I have read through it once. I've, it, it's very deep, I will even say that. Uh, theologically deep, but more so scientifically deep. And so I basically used it when I had a question or wondered what Whitcomb and Morris thought about an issue regarding Genesis or the flood. I would use it and just look up that section and try to wade through it and make sense of it. So our second way to strengthen our serve tonight is to remember that Footnotes and Bible, I guess that. Oh, I can use my notes. Sorry that went over, but remember that footnotes and Bible commentary are not God's Word. So, even the Schofield Reference Bible or maybe a study Bible that you have, the footnotes, you know that. They're not actually God's word. Bible commentaries are not God's word. We need to start with God's word. The third way to strengthen our serve is to look at issues through the truth of God's word. And that's what Dr. Whitcomb and Dr. Morris uh, tried to be an example of. And I was thankful, very thankful again for Pastor Larry this morning of exemplifying that by looking at the issues regarding marriage through the lens of God's Word and not through the lens of the culture as we see it today. So thank you, Larry, um, for doing that. 
Another way to strengthen your serve is I'd like to encourage you to follow the literal, historical, grammatical approach to Bible interpretation. And that's under attack today. We have a lot of Bible scholars following man's reason, uh, science, still trying to follow science. There's a theory out that has kind of replaced the gap theory called progressive creation that's alive today and very popular. Um, follow this approach. The joint effort to write this book, The Genesis Flood, caused me to think about other duos that accomplished much. And so I thought about history and Lewis and Clark and the Wright brothers. And then I thought about biblical duos or teams that worked together. Paul and Silas, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Timothy. Maybe you could include Elijah and Elisha. I'm sure there's others that I've missed. Um, and I'm not putting, up, putting Henry and John up there with the Bible characters, but these two uh, did a lot for um, promoting or being a catalyst for the modern creation movement. It actually formed major changes in approach and thinking in the evolutionary theory. It has been called a watershed moment when the Genesis flood was written, and it's been become one of the most important Christian books in the 20th century. It's gone through 40 reprints and sales over a half a million, and only one company would agree to publish it. Another thing in strengthening our serve, <clears throat> I'd like us to think about and recognize God's sovereignty over events in your life or my life. Um, as I grow older, I look back and I think I'm more aware of God's sovereignty over little events that I didn't recognize at the time. So, I recommend you start younger, think, thinking a lot about that. The constant reminder from Dr. Whitcomb to his son David as they wrote the biography is, quote, Dr. Whitcomb said, this cannot be about me, but about what Christ has done for me and through me. David believes that his dad lived life with Philippians 4.8 on his mind. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. As John would talk, like when he gave a presentation, he would often stop and just take time and say, 
something like, thank you, Father, for creating these magnificent creatures. Or if he was teaching on Daniel, he may stop and say, thank you, Father, that these events that were prophesied came true exactly to the letter. He would just stop in the middle of a presentation. He was always, I believe, thinking about what God had done. Think about the examples of God's sovereignty in John's life. I think about just the fact that he ended up at Princeton. His eyesight wasn't good enough for, you know, West Point. He wanted to go to Georgetown, but followed his dad's direction. How about the meeting of Henry Morris in, with Henry Morris in 1953, where John was busy, but he knew this guy who was going to be talking about the flood was in town, and so he made time to go listen to him. And how about even Moody not publishing John's dissertation, which if they would have, the Genesis flood might not have been written. And I recommend if, if you like reading biographies that this is worth your time. Written by John's son David. It's long, sometimes tedious, but it'll really uh, point you to God's sovereignty in one's life. So, I'm thankful for Dr. Whitcomb and how God used him in my life. And I'm hopeful that this sharing of some of the snippets of John's life will help you in strengthening your serve uh, going forward. Okay, now it's snack time. And so, I'm going to pray and then you can go. Enjoy some ice cream before it melts. Father, thank you uh, for your love, your direction in our lives. Thank you for how you orchestrate everything. Uh, thank you for the life of Dr. Whitcomb and Dr. Morris and for using them uh, so mightily uh, among us and among Christianity and in general. Uh, Please help us to be faithful uh, to, especially in mentoring and being mentored, that we would be found faithful servants of yours like Dr. Whitcomb was. In Jesus' name, amen.